Welcome to Not Work Storytelling. This is the show where we untangle our myths and reweave our stories, one ancient tale at a time. I'm your host and lead storyteller, Marisa Gowdy. I'm a myth worker, a story healer, a coach for writers and creative entrepreneurs, and the author of The Sovereignty Knot, A Woman's Way to Freedom, Power, Love, and Magic. If you love what you hear and want to support the show as we enter our third season, I'd be so grateful if you become a paid subscriber on Substack. In my newsletter, Myth is Medicine, you'll receive bonus content related to the stories on the show and deep dives into how mythology and folklore can help the individual and the collective in the present moment and beyond. There's a link in the show notes to follow Myth is Medicine on Substack. Or you can simply visit mythismedicine.substack.com. Season 3, Episode 7, The Driftwood Man by D. Mulrooney. We're releasing this episode just a couple of days before St. Patty's Day, the day when everyone is just a little bit Irish, and all the green plastic hats and leprechaun decorations and jokes about the holy art of binge drinking emerge like clover in a spring field. If you're hankering for a story of Ireland's patron saint, do listen back to season one's story of the great warrior Oisin and his time with St. Patrick. This time around, however, when the world turns its eyes to Ireland and sees 40 shades of what it might mean to be Irish, I want to share with you a story of Ireland that feels so much more resonant than the island's monastic past or that commercialized plastic present. Our guest storyteller is the multidisciplinary Irish artist Dee Mulrooney. Inhabiting a female body and all that it entails is the main preoccupation of her work. She explores exile, class, displacement, social history, longing and belonging, all through various media, including painting, drawing, film, storytelling, and performance. Dee's art is fiercely authentic, and she leaves no stone of her own personal healing journey unturned. She works with the alchemical aspects of transmutation in her art, using this process to deal with difficult topics, including abuse, death, and loss. Since the rise of the Me Too movement, the female voice has been gathering momentum and power. Despite the universality of the female experience as a theme in art, it has been largely underexplored. Within this context, Dee's performance art, you'll hear about Growler toward the end of our conversation, is provocative and has a political point to make. It's highly social, collaborative, and based on community building. Dee is driven by story and symbolism, how we remember and interpret history, and women's roles and their bodies within that. Well, I am so excited to have Dee here on the podcast today. I cannot wait to hear the story that she's going to tell and the story she's going to share with all of us. So as is our way on Notwork Storytelling, we let the story speak for itself first, and then we'll explore all the ways that it still matters. So Dee, will you tell us the story? Absolutely. Driftwood Man woke up. He had been floating too long. His limbs were faded and worn. He longed for land and rest. He longed for a place where he could feel whole again. You see, Driftwood Man was no ordinary man. He was made from the wood of memory. Parts of him had once touched the centre of the earth, while other parts had reached for the heavens 
His hand had once been a great oak that listened to the ancestors talk in a strange Celtic melody. His leg had been part of an olive tree in Sicily that bore fruit for generations. His head had seen too many cruel and savage battles in the forests of Hungary. His heart was made from the knot of a rowan tree, standing guard against the sorrow buried somewhere hidden within his memory. Some days, Driftwood Man balanced in the place between awake and asleep. This is where he was able to feel the most. Colours were vivid, noises were sharp and his thoughts were clear. In this place, he could smell and taste the fruits that once hung ripe from his limbs. He could hear the joyous laughter of the children who once climbed on his gently bowing branches. In this in-between place, he felt connected to everything around him. He was no longer floating in a sea of nothing. Instead, he was fully alive, pulsing with the essence of all that is. Other days, Driftwood Man descended into the darkest of sleeps. To be tortured by the remembering of things etched in his scarred body. He dreamed of battle after battle, century after century waged on. He would try to rouse himself from these nightmares only to fall further into darkness. He remembered his bowels being hacked to do the devil's work. He remembered sailing the seas to strange and beautiful lands, places where the people lived side by side together with the beasts and the trees and the rivers. He tried to forget the wailing screams and the terror in the faces of mothers as they watched their children murdered by pale-faced men. Then came days of emptiness, days where he remembered lying at the bottom of the ocean in total darkness. His only companions were the limpets and the barnacles, of which he still bears the tiny holes and scars made by them. Those days were the worst, the endless waiting. It was easier on the days when he felt no hope when he gave up thinking that he might never see light again. He remembered the day the diver came. It seemed eons had passed since he sunk to the bottom of the ocean. Then it happened. Someone stroked their hand along his grainy surface. The feeling of being remembered was too much for him and his rowan heart cracked open as relief, yearning and hope flooded in. He tried to resist, but he could not keep these feelings out. The diver pulled him from his watery abyss and gently ascended towards the shimmering light above. Driftwood Man spent many happy days with the diver. Life quickened and his senses sharpened while he's hung on a piece of leather around the diver's neck. Days of nothing faded away like fog 
into the clouds of the past. Once again, Driftwood Man enjoyed the presence of children. He allowed their laughter, their joy into his knotted heart. There was a different kind of love too. The diver's true love. This was a love that was new to Driftwood Man. A passionate love that created a different kind of longing. A physical longing to feel connected. He wanted to melt and join with something bigger than him. Then came the day that Driftwood Man loved the most. The day when the light of the sun stays longer than the darkness of night. On this day, the people gathered to light a fire together. They gathered to illuminate their shadows. They gathered to share and let go of their pain. They gathered to sing and dance. They gathered to listen to the whispers of wisdom that rise from the smoke held within the memory of the burning wood. Driftwood Man listened and watched as people talked with the fire. He heard many tales, prayers and songs. The diver moved closer to the fire. Driftwood Man could feel the heat in his rowan heart. The diver spoke with the fire. He cried with the fire. Then Driftwood Man heard the fire speak. At first, it was just a crackle and a hiss. Then came words and song. Do you still dream of the mountaintop stars, the olive groves, my beautiful little child? Do you remember the wind and the rocks and the storm you see at night? Do you remember the births and the deaths and the battles never won? In a flash of bright light, Driftwood Man saw all that he ever was. He saw his roots, he saw his tender leaves, he saw every knot, every line, every circle on his trunk. For the first time, he could remember. He saw himself whole. He saw his image in the fire. The diver held him in his hand. Then he took Driftwood Man from around his neck and placed a gentle kiss on his dry, parched body and he threw him into the fire. For the briefest of moments, Driftwood Man felt terror until he heard the voice again. Do you remember? Do you remember? Do you remember? You have traveled so far. You have borne the scars of centuries past of many dark nights alone. Your journey has ended, my child. Do not be afraid. You are home. You are not alone. 
do you remember? The diver stood back from the fire. At that very moment, there was a big spark as the final pieces of Driftwood Man melted into the burning embers. As the sun rose early the next morning, all that was left was ash. Oh, Dee, what a gift. I'm just, well, the best stories always leave you speechless, right? And this is always the hardest part is to say, how do we top something as gorgeous and elemental and true and so expansive and so intimate and small and personal and real and the size of an acorn and an entire oak tree all at the same time? Thank you. It's been many years since I read that story and it was, I really felt it as I got to, especially, you know, halfway through, I was like, oh yeah, I remember why I wrote this. I remember when it came, you know, I remember how I felt. Mm. And so thanks for the opportunity to share a little Driftwood Man again. Oh, it's so wonderful to, well, to give you a chance to remember him as we meet him for the first time. Wow. A little detail I picked up on that I'm just curious is it the equinox fires that he was at at the end? Because you said it was when the days are becoming longer than the night. Yeah, so it was the solstice, actually. I was imagining, you know, oh, June 21st right. when okay. the, the turning of the, when the Oak King hang, hands over to the Holly Queen. In my mythology, anyway, that's what happens, you know? So, um, yes. And people at ceremony, people sharing fire together and remembering with the embers. I love that Ember is part of remembering as well. So, Oh, a thousand percent. Well, well, so will you tell us a bit about where you were, what keeps seemed to be coming in? I know you said to me that this story was the beginning of so much for you. Yeah, so we had just left Ireland and it really wasn't by choice. It was very, very difficult. I would say uprooting. And there was, it seemed like there was no other way forward that would be kind of able to hold our family in a way that we could thrive in Ireland. So it was very painful. Mm -hmm. I think for, I mean, I can't speak on behalf of my children, but for me, particularly just to be, because I'm, you know, Captain Ireland, I'm like, (laughs) Ireland, I'm the ghost of Ireland. (laughs) So I'm absolutely in, in love with Eru and the land of Ireland and so it was a very, very difficult transition to come to Berlin, even though I love Berlin. It's kind of like Berlin had her mm-hmm. arms open. I was like, come on, come on. But I actually got really sick shortly after arriving to Berlin. Once we kind of managed to settle in an apartment, like we came here with nothing. We came in a, in a white van with our dog. Everything we owned was in the van. We had no jobs, no apartment. We had some savings. Mm-hmm. And I just knew that the, this is what we had to do, you know. So after we kind of settled and we did get an apartment, I got a really bad middle ear infection, which was the most pain. I thought I was going out of my mind. And during that time, once I'd gone to the hospital and realized what it was and I started to recover, this story, Driftwood Man, just came to me. I had been introduced to a storyteller in Berlin from Wales, Chris Rogers, 
And he told me that he made this marionette from driftwood. And I just loved that immediately that idea of driftwood. We don't know where it comes from. It could be from the other side of the world and it, it washes up on our shores and also wood holds memory, you know, and we, we actually know that now scientifically that the intelligence that's held within the DNA of wood, even when it's burning, is transmitted down through the mycelium and stuff like that. So when Chris told me about his little driftwood man marionette, I was just immediately like, oh, my God, I'm driftwood man. I feel like I'm a fragmented being that is looking for wholeness and home and longing. I'm longing to belong, you know, in the great words of John O'Donoghue, the late great poet. I don't know if you know John O'Donoghue's work, but um, yeah, you're like, yeah, of course I do. Shut up you. <laughs> <laughs> of course I know John O'Donoghue. <laughs> do you know who I am? No. So anyway, John's word re- words really helped me when I was homesick, you know. Mm. So the story, it, it came through just like that. I'd say within half an hour. I mean, as long as it took me to write it. And I was like, I just felt I started to get better then after that. And that was part of the realization as well, that creativity is medicine, you know, that when Mm. I create, I can I can get well again. And it just feels as well like that, this sense of. You know, there's so many of us displaced around the globe, even though when you step back and Carl Sagan would say we're just he did say you know the little blue dot we're just this little floating blue dot in the middle of nothing and it's the only home we're ever going to know but yet we feel so deeply connected and rooted to the place where we were actually born well I do I think a lot of us do so there's that sense of belonging where you're where you incarnate in this particular life and so Driftwood Man for me was like this little guy who's trying to remember bring his bit different parts of himself back together you know through the embers, through the burning woods, through the memory of the burning woods. So that's why bits of them are from all over the world. And it's also quite an Irish tale because the oak is from Ireland, obviously, the bits of them that are oak and the oak forests were, it's not, it wasn't just Queen Elizabeth, but like the uh, Queen Elizabeth cut down a lot of the oak trees to build her empire, to build ships, to go to Turtle Island to basically colonize, you know. They were built to do the devil's work and Ireland was stripped bare of her clothing to do that. And so Driftwood Man was a part of that as well. So he travels also. That's what that reference is there to the mothers whose babies were murdered. And then he then I was imagining that he's part of the boat, you know, and, and that he, he sinks below the ocean and he's there for hundreds of years. And then some diver finds him in California or whatever. Some surfer dude is goes to a shipwreck and finds a little piece of wood and it's driftwood man and he wears him and it becomes a talisman and then the healing of the generation so it's really layered anyway I feel like I'm kind of going off into driftwood man myself I'm like oh yeah but it, it actually is a really layered story for me it was really big part of my accepting that home is home is where people are and home is within even though I'm homesick I'm like I'm eternally home. I've accepted that I'm homesick. I'm homesick for Ireland. I'm, I, I am like, that's a fact. It's like, that's part of my existence. Right. As a woman walking the earth at this time, I am homesick, but I can also, I can walk with that. Yeah. 
I'm also a woman. I can walk with that on this planet. You know what I mean? Like there's all part, there's different facets of who we are. And it's almost taboo to say that you're homesick. Sure, you're not doing great. Aren't you great over there now in Berlin? Is it fantastic? Sure, you're thriving. And it's like, yeah, parts of my life are good, but I am I am deeply homesick still. And it's, it's partly to do with Ireland, but it's also partly to do with our disconnection from the great mother, you know? Yes. Trying to find our way back to her. So so that anyway, I'll shut up now. I'm, <laughs> no, God. I mean, everyone, everyone around the world is leaning in and saying more D, more. And yeah, I could just sit and listen to you forever. And that, that you know, you and I have never spoken until right now. I feel as if I know you so well due to the magic of Instagram and getting, I've gotten to know some of your yeah. friends and just how all these webs have started to work. It's funny. I think the first post I ever saw of, of you was talking about living in Berlin like in a very specific story you told sometime last year. So it's just fascinating to land here with you in this story that's so much about your moment of arriving. And that's how I felt I met you a year ago, though unrelated to Driftwood Man. And at the same way too, like this idea of being homesick, and I say this carefully, I'm an American born Mm -hmm. woman who has was telling you before, you know, it's like five generations back since anybody moving from Ireland to the States. But I'm from Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Mm. So I'm from the place where like the pilgrims literally landed first in a boat that, well, Queen Elizabeth wouldn't have built it for him because <laughs> she was happy to see them yeah. go. But lots of politics around that. But that sense of <sighs> the strangeness of feeling homesick for a place that I have never actually, well, I was not born there. I've lived there for a number of years, but it's that sense of dislocation and saying, you know, is this more of well, there's always that danger of being a non-Irish-born person and saying, I miss that country. Am I accidentally recolonizing again? And being as aware of mm. that as I can be just to know this, but I've got a whole American identity and a lot of weight yeah. behind that. But just to say that sense of, of homesickness for the place in which your feet were born. I live in New York mm. now. I miss my ocean home. Like Picking up driftwood is what we used to do after school, you know, and now I haven't seen the ocean in nine really long months. And just, I guess, all these, just these echoes of like every piece of driftwood man you brought together feels like it's pieces of all Mm. of us, of the longings that we can wear on our sleeves Mm -hmm. and the longings we're afraid to speak out loud that have been so submerged that are taken when you mix together the horrors of politics and trauma and history and then those little pieces inside of us that are still so tender and yearning and just say gosh you know tell me a story let me put my head on your knee while you tell me you know wear me around your neck a little while I need to be close to it I mean I think it's like we're living in a time now where obviously there's a lot more awareness politically and that's correct around what's happened historically Mm-hmm. to the people of this earth but we also have to acknowledge that there is a deep homesickness within all of us you know right. and we're all children of this earth all of us yeah. no matter what our ancestors have done mm-hmm. and I think like that yearning to belong is within every single human that walks this earth and for me Driftwood Man is like He's totally global because we don't really know where all of his bits are from. Right. You know, but they're united yeah. within within one yearning. 
to sit around the fire together. And without trying to simplify things, but sometimes we need to actually simplify things, I feel. Sometimes we actually really need to just go back to the simplification. And for me, it's really kind of liberating to admit there's parts of me that are heartbroken and that they might never get fixed. You know, we're obsessed with perfection. We're obsessed with healing in a way that's like perfect health, perfect mental health. Is that really what we're about, you know, as human beings? I don't think our ancestors were like that. I don't think they thought like that, that they were looking for perfection or that you were, they were looking to have whatever it is to be successful, you know? So for me, it's been really liberating to just kind of go, okay, there's parts of me that might never be fixed. I also live with several autoimmune diseases and missing loads of organs and dependent on medication. So I'm like, well, there's parts of me that aren't well. Am I going to spend the rest of my life trying to fix that and find the exact root cause of that? Or am I just going to kind of accept where I am? You're in New York. You're not near the ocean. You know what it feels like to pick up driftwood after school and take that for granted. And for that to be part of your the tapestry of your everyday life. And then when it's gone, you're like, oh, my God. So it's OK. I feel like just because we're missing something, it doesn't mean that we have to go back to that place. Like, I feel like we're these spiritual beings and clothed in flesh having this experience that's like, there's so much contrast. There's so much that's difficult. And why is difficult to boo? Why is it to boo? Why is it to boo to be homesick? Why is it to boo to be sad? Why is it to boo to be, to have autoimmune diseases? We're always striving for our anti-aging. This is the new thing. I'm not mm-hmm. anti-aging. That's ridiculous. Why would you be anti-aging? Like, right. Unless you're like anti-aging, like here, here comes my auntie and she's aging, yes, exactly. you know, like that, that sounds all right, you know, anti-aging. Yeah. But you know what I mean? We're so like fixated and I, I really don't know where that comes from. I really don't know. I just feel like, but held within definitely my, my lineage as a more or less Irish person, whatever that means. We do have archetypes though that celebrate the cyclical nature of life rather than a kind of a trajectory of the only way is up. Mm -hmm. And I love that about Celtic mythology. And I love that about where I'm from is that it's cyclical. We're not going anywhere. We're just going around and around and around. Yeah. And I think that's a huge source of why folks in the diaspora, whether however much amount of ancestry, just connection to Ireland, to the Celtic way of being, reach back Mm. because it's that pain of, progress and capitalism and all the things that seem to drive so much of the Western life when you don't live on a land with whom, yeah, Yeah. as mother, that you feel that direct connection because I don't know the stories of the land upon which I live. I can piece it together only bit by bit. The people who lived here before white settlers would have come because we live by the Hudson River, right? This This is that river that flows two ways. It's part salt. It's part fresh. That river way of being And the people who lived here have been sent to the Midwest. They've been sent to Ontario and Canada. This, that's knowing that that displacement happened mm-hmm. and that yearning to say, okay, and we live here now and we're making these new stories. Mm-hmm. And yet, and we see the cycles in the seasons and we have to reach back across an ocean for an ancestral heritage, mm-hmm. I guess, that we understand. But I want to loop back because you're coming here to us as 
as storyteller, but also as artist and performer. Mm. And those who may know you from your gorgeous art, like in that there is flesh and there is there. Here are the organs on display. Here is that sense of of really taking apart the pieces in order to see them anew. There's the fragility of the body Mm. and its amazing reproductive power. Do you feel like it's easier for you to present that in your art than it is in everyday life when everyone says, oh, but sure, you're grand. And you're supp- like, we're supposed to present two different personas? Well, that's a really interesting question. But like my art came from basically us moving to Berlin. It was a bit, a bit before that. But when the housing situation was becoming very insecure, mm-hmm. I grew up in a very secure environment, lived in the same house my whole life. My parents were working class, but they owned their house. And so for me, then when I had kids, I just assumed that that was going to happen. And then when we couldn't live really in a safe place mm. I started to panic and eventually then we we lost the rented accommodation that we were living in and we had mm. to move so that for me was like I, I couldn't believe it I couldn't believe that it was so hard to secure safe and affordable and a place where we would want to live where I grew mm. up right it, it just wasn't possible and people right. couldn't believe that People were kind of like, ah, yeah, but you're like, maybe, you know, there's this idea as well of like, but you're like, you, you know, we we had to work hard for our house. We had, but by that stage, then the equity was askew and that's end stage capitalism, mm-hmm. you know, late stage capitalism. Yeah. So my generation, I'm the tail end of my generation. Like a lot of my friends didn't have the same experience as me because I guess they had different priorities. I kept just thinking it'll work out like because I'm I've studied for six years and I'm a full-time permanent teacher and my husband's a carpenter of course we'll be able to afford a house so right. when that basic right. foundation is not there it really it scared the shit out of me like it just it dropped the bottom out of me basically mm. and I just was like I, I couldn't I couldn't stay I couldn't stay so it was really hard for my husband to manage because I'm I'm a very highly anxious person. That's something as well that I've learned about myself. It's changing now though with menopause, but I'm very, I'm like the canary in the mine. I've always been a total worrywart, highly anxious, highly attuned, a deer. What's going on? I know what's going on, feeling everybody around. And I would have seen that as, I would have tried to hide a lot of that behavior. So I would have developed coping strategies that were a little bit weird, you know? Like I wouldn't fly at certain times of the year. Or I wouldn't go on a car. You know, it's like bizarre things like control, you know, right. almost like mm. o- OCD for your life to try and keep myself safe and alive until my kids grow up. Or deeply intuitive, depending on how charitable you're feeling to exactly. yourself at any given you know? time. But mm-hmm. I do accept, yeah. I do kind of feel now looking back, well, that's just the way that I'm wired. For a long time, I couldn't accept mm-hmm. it. But I am, I am a highly, I, I don't know if anxious is the word, but I'm, I have a very, very, very sensitive nervous system. So, yeah, coming to Berlin, that wasn't great. Now, I have to say, like, my husband had to take the reins and basically put me in the back of the van with the dog. That's how bad I was. I mean, I was convinced we were all going to die because mm-hmm. I feel as well that I was the first in my family, not not the first in my family, because my other brother, my brothers had traveled and left and stuff. But as a girl, I felt like I was leaving Ireland I was leaving my family there was something about that piece that I was almost betraying my tribe you know almost Mm -hmm. like I was going and people didn't really believe that it was so bad that we had to leave 
my mother had dementia at the time. So I took on an awful lot of that of like I was like, but I, I had to do what I needed to do for my family. And I knew that we couldn't thrive in Dublin. I just knew it. I just in my car, I was like, I can't rent a shitty house for overpriced money and travel nearly three hours a day to go to work. Like I can't do that with two small kids. And I knew that Berlin would offer us something different. I knew it would be hard in the short run. So that's sorry, long loop back. But that's why I started making art because my husband was like, mm-hmm. he was basically going. I can't put up with you like you'll need to find a vessel you either need to find therapy because I'm trying to fucking manage all this shit here or you need to <laughs> like do something so yeah I started making art that's what happened I literally started it's so recent I just I, wow I mean because yeah. everyone who come, they think oh you know D came out of the womb no. you know drawing wounds no 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 I mean I mean when I was younger um, I had that connection very very strong and then mm. once I hit 11 or 12 then it just all it stopped and the education system took over and squished the creativity out of me and I went to art college hated it and studied Mm. graphic design miserable I just wasn't I just didn't know I was a working class girl my dad was a bus driver my mother was a seamstress I didn't know about art I didn't know that you could do fine art I just thought graphic design I'll make some money so I was facilitating other people's creativity because I became a teacher then and I have to say now it is a vocation and I love teaching but And I was very passionate about it, but I never, ever thought that I could make art. That was like, oh, no, you're not an artist. Don't be ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So I started making Mm -hmm. art as a a really to save my mental health, you know. And um, once it started, it literally it it was literally a tap went on. I'm just grateful that it's still going. You know, I've no idea when it'll stop, but it, it doesn't require any like it's not like yoga or my Wim Hof breathing or eating healthy or not drinking a glass of wine during the week. It doesn't require any willpower to make art. It's not like that. It, it's a compulsion. I love it. I think if you gave me a yurt and a few pencils and a sketchbook, I'd you'd never see me again. So like even today now I was painting and I got lost in the painting and I was like, oh shit, I didn't go to the shops. I didn't make any dinner, you know, and I had to like ring and Richie gone. He's out working like miserable in the cold. And I'm like, <laughs> he's laughing like it's like it's fine because I got that. It wasn't the first time it had happened, I would assume. Well, actually not. It doesn't happen very often because we were like, I, I really try to. The thing about it is, is that I make art in the cracks of my day. Like I don't let it interfere mm-hmm. with. I think also because it's the working class thing, you know, when you're working class, you kind of are raised with expectations that your self-worth is very tied into working. So you're working and you make money and there's a few bob on the table and well done. And working means Mm -hmm. physical, manual labor or teaching is working, going out and traveling and doing what you need to do. And that's work. Mm -hmm. And I have a very high regard for that, like in my DNA, because I come from a long line of working class people. So for me, art is like, I'm just going to go over here now and draw, you know. I'm just going to get me pencils out. Do you mind? And Richie's my husband's gas. Like, he's like, what are you talking about? Do whatever you want. Like, I, but I, it's almost like I still justify when I'm making art. Mm. So I, I make it within the cracks of the day and I'll any bit of space you give me. Like if I have a free class right. and all my work is done for prep or whatever, I'm out with pencils yeah. on the train, in a car, I make myself car sick on the plane, anywhere, right. everywhere. I'm, it's constant. Yeah. So, you know, I don't read anymore because 
I'm just drawing or painting. I listen to audio books and I listen to podcasts, but it's in bed. I sketchbooks everywhere and because it's it is a compulsion. It's like being addicted and it's the best kind of addiction because it just gives me it just helps me work stuff out, you know, and I'm just delighted. Like, like, seriously, Marissa, like people comment on stuff on, on Instagram and I'm like, oh, I, I can't get over it. I can't believe that people like leave comments and they're and they like it and they relate to it and they say nice things. I'm genuinely delighted. It's <laughs> like and from from the outside of like I'm genuinely like I'm talking to Dima Rooney right yeah. now and she's the amazing artist that I've just like looked at from afar and just been like someday I'll be brave enough to talk to someone as amazing as her. Yeah, and it's funny, isn't it? How we do that? No though. joke, no joke at all. Yeah. Like just, but like yeah, that sense of like oh, I've had my eye on that woman and the amazing things that she creates, and then that sense of like oh right, we're all we get to co-create together Absolutely. like that's why we're doing this we're not trying to impress anybody no. from thousands of miles off it's no. that i mean no. want to talk you know and yeah. uh, like uh, again mm. what you do you're you're like an incredible curator like what you're doing is social folklore it's really important work you are collecting people's stories like that's just doesn't really happen there are storytelling podcasts there but like you're actively collecting that and that's going to be held that's really to me curators as well are like the unseen kind of creators and you make stuff happen as well for artists do you know what I mean it's a really really important position so I don't underestimate what it is that you're doing here and I really feel like it's just such a a privilege to be able to make art you know I just kind of it's like I'm delighted with myself I really am and I've I've no expectations I really don't I've no Mm. I don't mm-hmm. really have that much ambition. I'm not like, I've got my eye on the ball for this. I'm not like that. I'm like, look, is there enough food on the table? I still have to go. Like, I'm a full-time teacher, you know. I have priorities. And my family, obviously, right. and my kids, it's it's first. So I don't mm-hmm. sacrifice that for anything. So for me, it's right. like, I need, and, and that's the great equalizer about social media is that like, wow, I get to create my own little gallery here. And I know for all the negatives of meta and I get it. I'm not an idiot. I know selling your soul to the devil in some ways, but I also feel like I met you and this little cauldron that we're bubbling in. I mean, really, I feel like what we're living in now, we look back in in 20 years, it's kind of a movement. I don't really Mm -hmm. know what it is, but I know it feels important and it feels like we all have these parts to it. You know, we're all swimming in the same soup in the same cauldron. You know, you're Mm -hmm. collecting stories like, you're bringing all these threads together in this one place. It's like when I think in 30 years time, people are going to come back and listen to this. And what what will it be? You know, what will they be looking back at? I hope in some ways that it will like, because I think, you know, what we're heading into is not going to be easy. It's not mm-hmm. easy. It's not easy right. for It's not easy for most people in the world, you know. Yeah. And how hard will it feel to fly, you know, get in a plane and fly across the sea? Will that, will that change? You know, I'm always aware of that. And it just makes me think of, yeah, Driftwood Man would have had, what's his connective tissue that would have linked all of his different pieces together, right? Because the pieces of wood that he's made up of makes matter so much. And then, you know, is he made of, is it rope? Is it wire? What is it? And that just, it just was like a thing to wonder about. He is actually a physical marionette that my friend Chris made because he, ah, so his, right. so he's from Wales and the driftwood was kind of floated up on, on a beach in Wales where he's from. And when he showed me where mm. he's from, it's basically, it's like a concave 
kind of inlet and where I'm from, it's like it, it literally married the piece of land. It's directly across from each other. Oh, yeah. So Chris was made Driftwood Man from these little bits, bits of wood that he'd collected over the years from the beach. Mm. And I just felt like that wood and, and learning more and more, like I was saying about the trees, you know, and I don't know if you know about Wangari Matai, but she was a Kenyan woman who won the Nobel Peace Prize for she created the Greenbelt movement in Kenya. And she tells the story of the little hummingbird who the forest is on fire and all the animals are watching and their home is burning down. And the little hummingbird decides, well, I'm not just going to stand around with you lot looking at this. I'm going to do something. So she goes to the lake and she takes up a little drop in her beak and she drops it on the fire and she keeps going back, you know, hundreds of times. And the elephant says to her, what a fool you are, you know, that's not going to do anything. And she basically says, well, I'm doing the best I can. So that was Wangari Matai's message. And I feel like that's all we can do. All we can do is our best. Imperfect as we are. Yeah. And what that offers us as a gift as artists, as activists, as parents, as teachers, just in that sense of this is what I've got today. I've got a drop. Yeah. Oh, it's remarkable. I'd love to bring in this other part of you. Can we? Bring in the growler just for a moment and have her and bring her because I feel like we can't leave her out. We're talking about a driftwood man, and I'm very happy that he gets to be here. Yeah. But but what about her too? I'd love to invite her. Growler and driftwood man kind of happened at the same time because my friend had an online mm-hmm. magazine. She's uh, my friend from Ireland called The Wild Word, and she basically it's an online magazine for a voice for the voiceless. So I mean, she works with people on death row and stuff like that. Writers who are like who would never have a voice. She's incredible. So she's really working on the margins for giving people this chance to write. It's really a beautiful, beautiful magazine. It's called The Wild Word. You should check it out. So Cosy was like talking about Growler as my alter ego vagina. I was like, imagine if my vagina could talk to me, you know, what advice would it give? So I had this online column with Cosy where Growler was the agony aunt. I don't know if you have that in in America, where you write into this problem column, like, you know, in a newspaper, you would have said, dear such and such, dear Growler, my husband is having an affair. What should I do? This kind of thing. So Cosy would write problems and Growler would respond. So it was pretty curated. And that's where it started. So I did. Cosy was like, can you do an illustration for Growler? And Growler was like an 82 year old kind of like cigarette smoking, cocktail drinking vagina with a tongue like a lash. And a heart of gold, wise as witches, you know. Mm. And she's from the inner city of Dublin, the Liberties, which is where my ancestors on my mother's side are from. And the Liberties was outside the king's realm because Ireland was surrounded by a wall called the Pale, which was built by the Vikings and the English. And so Dublin was kept inside the Pale and everything outside was called, well, a part of Dublin was called the Liberties, where they didn't pay taxes and it was pretty much the Wild West. So that's where my ancestors are from. So they never paid any taxes to the king and growlers from the liberties and so that's where it started and then we were having this festival in berlin uh, alternative irish arts festival to talk about irish artists who are exiled in inverted commas mm-hmm. and we called it craw because a craw is like it's like a bird's gullet the neck of a bird or the throat of a bird and it's used as an expression to describe something that you want to talk about but you don't know if you should it's probably going to cause problems if you do but if you don't talk about it, it's going to get stuck in your craw. So we were having this really difficult conversation about Ireland, like 
and it was alternative Irish arts. So the artists who were involved were all dealing with the topic of having left Ireland. I mean, nobody wants to leave Ireland, Marissa. Have you seen it? Like, it's just gorgeous, <laughs> you know, like, seriously. <laughs> Why would you ever want to I've leave? Noticed, yeah. It's so beautiful. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. but it's very hard to live there. Right. The inequity and the acute hurry and the shenanigans and the corruption. And it's, you know yourself, it's a lot. Mm -hmm. So Growler came out of that. And Growler was born at our festival on the solstice in 2018. And her first performance was a total disaster. I forgot all my lines. I had full blown endometriosis at the time. I was hemorrhaging while wearing Growler. Ended up in A&E the next day, having organized this festival. It was it was like life imitating art or art imitating life. You couldn't get couldn't make it up. But yeah. what I learned from that was that we invited the shadow in and shamanically or whatever way you want to say it, or we were inviting these very difficult subjects in exile, displacement, mm -hmm. craw, mm -hmm. anger, mm -hmm. resentment, rage. And it came and it, I, I didn't really at the time have any boundaries. So I was just kind of like, yeah, I'm going to say this and I'm going to do this. Thing. And Growler was meant to be a glove puppet. And I was working with this woman, Ava Garland, who I still work with. She's like my sister in creative crime. Her grandfather's from Ireland and uh, Ava was like, no, Growler's not a glove puppet. She's a full body puppet. And she basically came back with Growler. She kind of made her very, very quickly. She's unfinished. Growler actually unfinished. And I performed her and it just, and I remember afterwards, like my husband and Ava being kind of devastated from me because it was mortifying. There was a couple of hundred people in the room and Growler got up and I couldn't, I, I, I sang a bit of a song and then I stopped and I said, I'm done. And everybody thought it was great because they thought, the old vagina has had enough of this patriarchal bullshit and she just walked off. So it went down well. But, you know, Ava and my husband were like, oh, you know, well, but I know they were kind of a bit heartbroken for me, but I was like, this is not the end. Like, yeah. and that was it. And I like, yeah, just growler. She and it's, I've done so many hard gigs. Like, seriously, I've been on the back of a truck at protests. I've been at people's gigs, I've been like where nobody got it at all. I've I've been met with walls of silence many, many times. Mm -hmm. And every time I'd be like, what am I doing? I don't need to do this. This is just too harsh. This is mad. What am I doing? And then something would drop in from Growler. Like again, I'm walking and a whole spoken word piece just drops in and I have to stop in my tracks and record it on my phone. Or it's like she's talking to me, like she talks to me. That sounds mental, but like Growler is obviously I'm <laughs> I'm not <laughs> I, I, I'm not I don't think I have a mental illness. Maybe I do. But Growler is she obviously I'm her. Right. I'm not trying to say, oh, she's but there is definitely right. something happens with Growler when I put her on. She smells like an ancestor, you know, she smells like the fire. She's never been around a fire because she's highly flammable. But she smells like fire. She smells like, and when I put Growler on, my whole nervous system completely calms down and I go into an absolutely different space. I perform with my eyes closed. Can't see anything. Right. So that's Growler. I don't really know what Growler is. She's like a absolute, I don't know. I don't know what she is. Yeah. She's an ancestor. She's an ancestor. Uh, and a phenomenon. Yeah. yeah, I give you phenomenon as another word. Yeah. I mean, in the sense that, and I just, I so appreciate all the 
the layers and vulnerabilities and pain of holding space for her and how it's difficult. Because from 3000 miles away, looking at her in a little tiny box on my phone, I'm just like, I want to be in that space with that sort of power and energy, especially when I flash back to being in Dublin myself 20 years ago and lonely as hell, just looking at the rain falling over Christchurch Cathedral in this tiny, weird apartment I was sharing with way too many people. And then imagining like, oh, there'd be 20 something years later, Growler would be there. And holographically, I could almost imagine the healing of my sad, lonely, hash ridden graduate student self that I was in Dublin many moons ago. But I want to just call in to like Laura Murphy, who's been on the podcast a couple yeah. of times and talks and is, is obviously a good dear friend of yours, yeah. like Imbus being so much of what Laura's work is yeah. and just sounding like that. And then Laura's talked too about like, oh, moments of the of big Imbus, the blood flows yeah. and that yeah. whether it comes as just a heavy monthly flow and the average bits of your early 40s, yeah. raising my hand, <laughs> or it sounds like for you that sense of like, oh no, this came in and this was not, this was not a monthly, this was a life shifting moment. And I just. Yeah. And again, again, though, this thing of like, I'm very easily pleased person. Like I'm not like, I'm really not that pushed, you know, like I love this conversation. I'm not looking to be out there. And I, and every time I do her as well, like, I just want to be straight away. I just want to run out the back door. I don't really want to talk to anybody. I don't want to, it feels like it's a job, not, not not a job like working in a supermarket job. Um, it's it feels like it feels like there's something that I, it's something that I just have to do, like a calling. A calling, yeah. It feels like a vocation. <laughs> yeah. She feels mom. Like a, someday I'm going to grow up and I'm going to be a giant vagina. She feels like a vocation, which is gas. Yeah. And you know, I feel very protective of her space as well. You know, mm. it's funny when I'm traveling with her, like. There's no way she's going under the underneath. Mm-hmm. And I feel very, very respectful of the more I do it, actually, the more I feel like the costume kind of without being too now woo woo about it, honestly, because we're all just matter anyway. Like everything is alive and everything is sacred. But I do feel like I'm quite respectful about the costume. And also, I don't I don't hang around in her, you know, like people say. Oh, could you just come as Growler? And I'm like, no, no, no. Growler is her own thing. You know, I'm not her. Like, that right. sounds mental. Now I'm yeah. like, oh, God, are people going to lock me up? That was also a big part of it. Yeah. You know, the fear that came up, Marissa. Like, when I started making this art and when I started painting Mary as a vagina and stuff, like, I was doing that eight years ago. You know, now it's really, everybody's doing it. But at first, I was pretty terrified. Mm. And even as Growler, I mean, I, I thought I was going to be killed. I did. Yeah. That Those thoughts mm. came in. Or they're going to get me. You know, the Pope is going to get me like mad shit because I was raised Catholic and my ancestors were Catholic and women in my family were probably locked up, you know. Yeah. One generation ago, I would have been definitely locked away for, do you know what I mean? So, yeah, we only um, have to go look back as far as Sinead O'Connor and her picture of the Pope and know that, I mean, my 13 year old American kids like, is this the the lady with the picture of the Pope? And I'm like, and that's all they know. And that echoes forth as... Yeah. I'm not raising my kids Catholic in this country and it's still yeah. there. But. Sinead was a trailblazer and yeah. she suffered a lot because of it. Yeah. And I feel as well like I think Growler protects me mm-hmm. because I, I am in costume and I can't see and I don't right. engage with mm-hmm. my eyes, you know. Yeah. And I know that a lot of practices where people are working that way, it's like, I mean, it's performative. 
but it is definitely for me personally speaking when I'm performing growler I love to get to a space myself where I'm getting some healing mm. and I know if I can get to that space that at least one other person in the audience is feeling that yeah so yeah that for me is is enough yeah. that's enough it doesn't matter like yeah. and there's always one person I mean I have performed to a walls of silence where I've been going this is crap or what what is it and then there's always one woman who will come up afterwards and go, thank you. Thank you. Right. And I go, yeah, that's why I'm here. Yeah. And you healed in that silence together. And if yeah. everyone was hooting and hollering and getting it, it wouldn't have been that same healing that she no. needed. Yeah. yeah. Oh, gosh, Dee. So we could <laughs> talk forever. And I just want to just say how brilliant it is that we start with one puppet that ended up becoming a story. And then we and we are concluding with a being that was supposed to be a puppet and became this entire life-size entity that you have embodied. I just, I mean, the full circleness of it, it, it isn't this podcast, it's your life and your art and the way you create. And it's so, so meaningful. And I'm just so grateful to you and all that you've sent, you send across the oceans and out into the ethers and into hearts and minds and wombs and all of, all of it. And Marissa, thank you so much for giving me the chance to just talk about it in this way. Like I never thought about it like that, you know, start out with Drupal Man. Man. <laughs> a giant vagina. <laughs> well, I was going to ask like, huh, Driftwood Man, huh? Like, of course, we're, we're recording this the day after Wh International Women's Day. Your art is just so deeply, divinely feminine yeah. and embodied. And it began with a wooden man. And there's just a poetry to that. It began with a wooden man because I met a storyteller who was a man and I've lots of good men in my life. That's another thing. Like I've only right. brothers. Yeah. I have three brothers, no sisters. Yeah. And I have two boys yeah. and my husband has two brothers mm -hmm. and I've been surrounded by men my whole life. Yeah. And my dad was an amazing, is an amazing storyteller, yeah. a beautiful gentleman. Mm -hmm. I'm married to a gorgeous ridey man. I've got beautiful brothers, you know, so I feel like the only way forward is together. Yes. And even yes. though Grailer is a flaming vagina feminist, she loves men. You know, she right. had three husbands. They all died. And she had five boys. <laughs> you know? So I absolutely love men. Yes. I love them. Yes. I love humans. And I feel like I want my boys to be to feel that love and I want them to feel not to be ashamed of their masculinity. Yeah. And I know that it's very, very, very strange and hard times that we're living in. Everything is exposed. Mm -hmm. And I know mm -hmm. that's very, very hard for yeah. boys as well, you know? Yeah. yeah. So while I'm a massive ad advocate, obviously, for equality and I'm a raging feminist. Yeah. I love men because. It's healing the both and it's yeah. healing us both, to, all of us together, because we are yeah. all of the parts and we may find a counterpart in somebody with with different anatomy. And it's but it's also the masculine, feminine swirl yeah. and dance and all of it. Yeah. yeah. And everything in between. Everything. In that's between. why I think that's the times that we're living is in as well, that everything is. Yes. It's very, very, you know, there's lots of lots of grays. Yeah. It's pretty much not non-binary times we're living in. I love that. I really um, love that. I'm all over that. I just feel like, yeah, for me, it's Driftwood Man. I don't know why he came in as a masculine energy, but it definitely was masculine, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. yeah. Definitely was. 
Because we need both. We need all. We need those spaces in between because it's just the and. That's the only way forward. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You're absolutely lovely, Marissa. You're just, you hold space oh. so beautifully. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Dee. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Marissa. Really grow more. You know, that means big love. Grow massive. From Berlin. Thank you for tuning in to the Not Work Storytelling Podcast. Please subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. And do share this episode with other lovers of myth and story. By the way, everyone is a lover of myth and story, even if they've forgotten. Creating this show is a labor of love. And your support will help me continue to craft and share stories through season three and beyond. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber over on Substack, where I'm writing and creating additional audio magic with my newsletter and content hub, Myth is Medicine. You can find out more about my writing, my book, our online creative community, The Heroine's Knot, as well as how to work with me as a coach at marisagowdy.com. Music on the show is by the wonderful Beth Sweeney and Billy Hardy, a Celtic fiddle and multi-instrumental duo based on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The traditional reel we play at the start of the show is called The College Groves. Find out more about their music and shows at billyandbeth.com. Gratefully, I live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Muncie Lenape tribe, whose name means original people. <laughs>